all of the work that goes into a new sermon series uh, each time we start one is um, something that I, I really enjoy and I, I you know it's kind of that that opportunity to get to that place of here we go you know and so last Sunday when uh, everything had fallen in place and the recharge books were ready and uh, the community group studies were ready and the first sermon was ready to present and I woke up sick it was it was devastating um, you know I appreciate so much Pastor John uh, sharing with you uh, the the concepts about you know dealing with uh, difficulties in our life and and how that we can use those for what God wants them to be used to to create in us the person he wants us to become but i'll just be frank with you i wanted to preach that sermon last sunday um i'm not going to preach it this morning uh just in case you're wondering we are going to move on um but this this book of second corinthians is a book that that has just really ministered to me as i've been doing this preparation work for the last several months and so this morning we're, we're going to move forward and look at this concept of grace in the midst of conflict. You know, every human relationship is dependent upon communication. If communication between two people is good, then usually that means the relationship is also good. Then there's mutual confidence and there's trust that's happening in that relationship. But when that trust is broken, for whatever reason, and there are a myriad of reasons, whenever that trust is broken, that, that confidence turns into conflict and suspicion. And at almost well, at some point in almost every relationship, you will have conflict that will arise. Um, you know, we were doing some work uh, here last week in the auditorium, and we were reminiscing about uh, some of the conflicts that arose between people as we were working on the remodel. And, um, you know... The fact is we can love someone very much and yet there will be a time when all of a sudden we're clashing, you know? And, and so how do we avoid that or can we avoid that? I don't think we can. It's not a matter of if conflict is going to come around, but when conflict comes, how are we going to react to that conflict? Or better yet, rather than reacting to the conflict, how will we respond to that conflict? You see, reacting, while inherently not necessarily bad, it often carries the connotation of responding with hostility or responding with opposition or a contrary course of action to something. And so, reacting often negative whereas a response is usually more positive in nature 
And so this morning, as we look into this next section of scripture in 2 Corinthians, if you want to be turning in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as we look at this next section, we're going to be thinking about how we should respond when we face difficult situations in our lives and difficult situations in our relationships with one another. Now, in our text today, we discover that Paul is addressing a situation of broken trust between himself and the believers at the church in Corinth. Okay, and this book is written to the church in Corinth. That's why it's referred to as the Corinthians. These are the believers in Corinth. And it seems like the Corinthian believers were accusing him here of being fickle or insincere. You see, Paul, in their understanding, had promised one thing and yet had not delivered. He did something else. And from their perspective, it seemed like he was doing what was just convenient for him. His self-interest was dictating what he was doing. And so they considered him to be fickle and insincere. So I want us to read. We're actually going to begin reading in verse 12, in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. And we're going to study through chapter 2, verse 11. Um, but we're just going to read up through verse 12. Four of chapter 2 right now. Alright? 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 12. The Bible says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. I hope you will fully understand. Just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have an, a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us. And given us his spirit in our hearts. As a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you. That I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith. But we work with you for your joy. 
for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And as I wrote, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you, of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, as we read this, we, we don't actually understand everything that's going on in this passage because we actually have to read into the passage a little bit to understand the situation that's happening here between Paul and the believers at the church in Corinth. So we're able to read into this situation because of what Paul wrote here in this passage. He, basically, he's saying that you know he had made plans to visit the, the city of Corinth, but circumstances had forced him to wait for a while. And so when he couldn't go to the city of Corinth, then the people there uh, began to uh, make assumptions and, you know, make, uh, well, they, they began to, uh, brain fog is a real thing, <laughs> uh, pray for me this morning, but they made assumptions that, you know, why Paul would or would not go. And so that gave rise to a misunderstanding among the Corinthian believers. One commentator, Dr. French Arrington, explained it this way in, uh, in regard to Paul's travel plans. He said, at first, Paul intended to go from Ephesus to Corinth and then on northward up into Macedonia, which is where Philippi is, and then go back to Corinth and then go back on his way to Judea or Jerusalem. He changed his mind, however, upon hearing of the crisis in the Corinthian church. There was nothing wrong with him changing his travel plans, but his enemies in Corinth seized this opportunity to accuse him of indecision as well as neglecting the church. Did you hear that? You see, there were people in the church, and we know this because of other readings in the book of Acts as well as uh, in 1 Corinthians. There were people in the church that were in opposition to the Apostle Paul. And so they used this as an opportunity to badmouth him, to accuse him of not caring about the Corinthian believers. That's why he didn't come visit you, because he doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. He speaks out of both sides of his mouth. Thus the text talks about the yes, yes, and the no, no. That was the accusation against him. And you know, folks, I have found that there will always be people who are ripe and ready to make accusations against me. You've probably found that to be true in your own lives. Um, when, when you step into the role of a pastor, 
Um, it, it's a special kind of thing that people are always very ready to make accusations against you. They question your character. They blame you for having some ulterior motive. Or, or they blame you for whatever, whatever. And, you know, I, I want to just cry out sometimes and say, I promise there's no ulterior motive here. I just forgot. <laughs> you know, that happens a lot. When this happens, the way that we react, the way that I react to those type of accusations reveal a lot about who I am. It reveals a lot about my character. And frankly, it reveals a lot about my daily walk with Christ. Now, just to be honest with you, <clears throat> that's, <laughs> that's unnerving to realize that the way that I react to you reveals to you how I'm walking with Jesus day by day. Um, it puts the onus upon me to, to walk with Christ. And, it, you know, just as a side note, um, as I was uh, sitting there in my recliner all week long uh, trying to get over my fever and, and so forth, I, I broke my version Bible streak this week. It was so sad. Um, I was... I was approaching day 300 and broke my Bible streak. Matt's laughing at me down there because we always check on each other. So you're ahead of me now, or you better be because I only have five days right now. Um, you better be, right? Uh, okay. My daily walk with Jesus Christ is the determining factor of how I respond. And if I'm not walking with Christ, that's when I react. And reacting is not what I want to do. When dealing with this kind of situation, folks, it's important to remember that we cannot control other people's actions. We can only control our reactions. And so we see in this passage some of the ways that Paul responded to the situation that was happening in Corinth. And so that's what I want us to focus in on today. Again, all of the details of, of what happened here, we could go deep into the minutia of the historical setting and the geography and what all was happening. But I really want us to focus in on Paul's response to this conflict. Paul's response to this lack of communication which has caused some difficulties in his relationships with the people in Corinth. And so the first thing that I want to point out this morning is this. Sometimes love must be tough. Sometimes love must be tough. If you look at chapter 2 verse 4, Paul said, for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. Not to cause you pain, but, <coughs> but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, Paul 
Well, I, I, I watched our sermon last week, and I don't remember all the details because I was running 103 fever. So, but I'm pretty sure John did a good job of covering all the different things that I talked about. You remember us talking last week about the fact that 2 Corinthians is not actually the second letter that Paul wrote and how that there was a lost letter in between. John's shaking his head, so I know he said it, all right? There was a lost letter in between. You see, Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth, and for whatever reason, God in his wisdom had chose to not preserve that for us. I think it was because, if I can get into the mindset of God in this situation, I think it was because it was dealing with a very specific situation, and therefore it wasn't included as part of the canon because you know when we have real specific situations that we find in scripture sometimes we become very legalistic about those things and so paul dealt with a situation and he says here in chapter 2 verse 4 that he wrote that letter out of much affliction out of anguish of heart with many tears he said, I did not write the letter to cause you pain, but the implication is, is I know that it was painful for you to read that letter. Folks, we cannot shy away from doing the right thing or saying the right thing just because it might be difficult for someone to hear. Paul responded to a situation at the church in Corinth in love, but it was a tough love. It was a love where he's telling them, you're doing wrong, you need to fix this. You see, these conversations are not just difficult to hear. I mean, I don't enjoy being told all the ways I'm doing something wrong or things that I need to fix in my life. That's not pleasant to hear. But folks, it's also not pleasant to be the one speaking. It's a difficult thing for us to go and to tell someone how they need to change the way that they are living. Paul said that he wrote to them out of much affliction and anguish of heart. With many tears. And you know, just as a side note, had Paul enjoyed writing that letter, then there would have been a problem in Paul's heart. Of course, it's hard for him. Why? Because he loved them. Some of the most difficult things I've ever had to do was to discipline my children. Um,. You know, when I was growing up, I was convinced that my mom and dad enjoyed disciplining me uh, because they did it all the time. But if you're a parent, you understand what I'm saying. Um, it, it is heartbreaking to see your child hurting, in pain, devastated, heartbroken. But sometimes love must be tough. You see, tough love often feels like conflict, but that's why the emphasis here must be on love. 
It's not just that he was tough on the church at Corinth, but that he showed them tough love. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Proverbs 17, 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who respects a matter separates close friends. I preached on these verses three and a half months ago. It was June the 5th of this year. When we were going through the series, it's complicated. And if you want to refresh your memory on what this concept is of covering offenses, I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that sermon again. But this, whenever we are dealing with situations, love must always be demonstrated. This past week in your community group studies, if you were able to be a part of one of those, we focused our study in the book of 1 Peter chapter 4. And we were looking at a biblical response to suffering there in verses 12 through 19. But if you look just before that section, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8, Peter wrote these words. He said, above all. Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Ephesians 4.15 tells us to speak the truth in love. So folks, whenever we're dealing with a conflict, we want to look for every opportunity we can to extend love and grace but that cannot mean that we avoid having tough conversations when tough conversations are needed to be had. We have to learn to discern when love and grace are what someone needs or if what they really need to hear is the, the harsh truth spoken to them in love. So Paul recognized that his relationship with the believers in Corinth had suffered on account of this stern letter that he had written that we no longer have uh, it, you know, available to us. He recognized that his enemies had used these stern words to accuse him of being uncaring. And so this is the reason why Paul wrote what he did here in chapter 1, verse 12, through verse 22. So let's look at this because, you see, Paul knew that broken trust needs reconciliation. That's our second point this morning. Broken trust needs reconciliation. So how did Paul attempt to reconcile the issues here of broken trust? He had been accused of these things. People were all up in arms. There was a conflict between him and the believers at the church of Corinth. So how did he attempt to reconcile with them? Well, the first thing that I notice is in verses 12 and 13. And that is, he gave them his perspective on the situation. But when he told them his point of view, he did so in such a way that he was not defensive. Again, folks, it's the difference between reacting and responding. 
Because when we react, we become defensive, right? But if we can respond, that's when we're able to communicate without attacking the other person. You see, the fact is there's always more than one side to every story. Amen? If we will learn that issue, husbands, wives, if you will understand that issue, that will, that will solve a, a multitude of problems in your marriage. Realize that the way that you see it is not the only way it can be seen and be seen accurately. In a situation of broken trust, it's important that we learn to see things from the other people's point of view. And so in verses 12 and 13, again, he, he helped them to see his point of view without becoming defensive. Then as you go on, and in verses 14 and 15, he, he speaks to them in a very positive way or a positive tone. He, he con. You know, he comments on the fact that you understand these things. And I'm, I'm so happy that you do understand these things. And, and you're going to understand even more later. You know, if we go into a situation where we're condescending and telling people that they don't know anything and they're stupid. or You may not use those words, but so much of communication is nonverbal. It's tone of voice. It's the way that we look at somebody when we're saying certain things. He spoke to them in a positive manner, in positive tone. And then finally in verses 16 through 19, he gets to the issue. He challenges these rumors that are being spread by his enemies. But notice this. He challenged the rumors that were being shared, but he did not disparage the people who were sharing them. That's really important. Really, really important. Then in verses 20 through 22, he reestablished the foundation for their relationship with one another. What is the foundation of our relationship with one another? What was Paul's foundation for his relationship with the Corinthian believers? It was God. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what he says here. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. We have a relationship with one another because of God. Because we are one in Christ. And we've been sealed, he goes on to say, with the Holy Spirit of God. Who's living in our hearts as a guarantee of the life that is to come. He's saying we need to get along because we've got a bond. <clears throat> we have a foundation to our relationship that goes way beyond just being friends. No, we're brothers and we're sisters in Jesus Christ. Bound together through the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then finally, in verse 23, he articulates why he changed his mind. But we're going to deal with that in a few minutes. So what can we learn from Paul's response here in verses 12 
through 22. Well, I think that there are four keys here that we see for reconciling broken trust that we see in his example. Number one, we need to see things from the other person's point of view. If we've got a problem with somebody, we've got to try our best and, you know, praise God for James chapter 1 when it says, if we lack wisdom, ask of God and he will give it to us. Because, folks, there are times when I don't have a clue as to why you're thinking what you're thinking because it's not what I'm thinking. And you're thinking, well, you're the one that's thinking wrong, right? That's why we need wisdom to see things from the other person's perspective. So that's number one. We've got to see things from the other person's <coughs> point of view. Number two, we've got to speak truth in love with positivity. Now, I have never been accused of being overly positive in my life, okay? Never. But the fact of the matter is, we've got to learn, especially if we want to, to reconcile broken trust, we've got to learn how to be positive, even if we're speaking difficult truth. Number three, and by the way, these are uh, in version uh, notes if you, if you don't have time to get all these written down and you want them. Number three, we've got to focus on the problem, not the personalities. Paul addressed the issue. Paul addressed the rumors that were going around. But again, he did not disparage the problem people. He only addressed the problem. Folks, if you want to break trust with someone because they did something stupid, then attack the person rather than addressing the issue. That will break the relationship every single time. It's You've got to address the problem, not the person. The fourth thing that I see is that Paul found common ground with the Corinthian believers. He reminded them, he reaffirmed with them their bond. And that bond, that foundation of their relationship was God, the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit that's inside us, living inside us, our guarantee of what is to come. He had a bond with them. We also must, when we're trying to reconcile broken trust, we must find that common ground. That may be our beliefs. You know, the fact that we both trust in Jesus Christ and we, you know, because we're brothers and sisters in Christ, that's our, our common ground. It may be our purpose because of our trust in Jesus Christ, our goals here at the church. Folks, there's so much more important things that need to happen in this place than for us to get tied up in some silly conflict. 
There's so many things that are more important. We've got to find that common ground. You see, when trust has been broken in a relationship, these are some simple, practical steps that we can take to try to reconcile with someone with whom we are in conflict. However, we cannot ever forget the necessity of love to this whole process. Just a few pages back in my Bible, in Paul's previous letter that we have to the Corinthian church, chapter 13, verse 1, he said these words, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What's this really saying, folks? Think about it for a moment. If I am the greatest preacher that has ever walked the face of the earth other than Jesus Christ himself, but I do not show you love, then in your ears my words are jarring and annoying. That's what verse 1 is saying. If I understand everything that there is to understand in God's word, and have faith that is so great I could, as it says, remove mountains. I can be the greatest Bible teacher in the world, but if I don't show the love of Christ through my life to you, I am nothing, it says. I can be the most generous philanthropist in the world. I can give up my body as a sacrifice for the cause of Christ. And yet, if I do it without love, I have absolutely gained nothing. When we're speaking truth, when we're seeking reconciliation, if we do not demonstrate love then it's all for naught so the first thing that we said this morning was that sometimes love must be tough and that broken trust needs reconciliation now the third thing I want us to look at is that sometimes grace must be extended. Sometimes grace must be extended. You see, Paul's decision to not come to Corinth as he had told, him, told them that he would was a demonstration of grace toward that church. Hmm. Him not showing up was a demonstration of grace. 
I told you we'd get to this in a few minutes. Well, those few minutes have passed. Look at verse 23. It says, but I call God to witness against me. In other words, as God is my witness, Paul says, it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. He said, I was, I, you deserved me coming and disciplining you for the things that you were doing. But it was my extension of grace to you that I refrained from coming. According to Dr. Arrington, commentator I mentioned earlier, he said that Paul's first visit occurred when the church was founded in Acts chapter 18, which I hope you've spent some time in your recharge book this week and you read through Acts chapter 18 and you did those studies in Acts 18 to kind of give you some context of uh, the church at Corinth. He went on and said, apparently he had already made a second visit, which had turned out to be an unpleasant experience. He was preparing for a third when he heard that trouble was brewing in the church. You see, there were those who were opposing him. And if he had gone, he would have had to take strong disciplinary action against those people. But his desire was to offer them pastoral care. He didn't want to be the disciplinarian. He wanted to be a loving pastor to them. So a visit at that time <coughs> would have provoked more trouble. So he did not want to go to Corinth until they had had time to change their attitude. So what did he do? He wrote them a letter. You see, his concern was to restore them to fellowship with him. You see, Paul was the founding pastor of the church at Corinth. He was one of their main leaders and teachers. He, he spent a lot of time there at Corinth. And so Paul not only had the right, but he had the responsibility to confront the erring church members. So he chose to do that in a letter rather than face to face. So that when he was there and he spent that time with them, he would not, that time would not be filled uh, with conflict and disciplinary action. He chose to give them, uh, or he chose to give those in the wrong a second chance to do what was right. I love that. He chose to give them a second chance to do what was right. This was one way of extending grace to them in this situation. Pointing out their error and giving them the opportunity to make that change. It was a demonstration of Paul's love for them. And frankly, they didn't deserve it. The church at Corinth, as you... As you Read through uh, the first letter that we have, 1 Corinthians. Uh, you, you should have already started that and you're going to... Uh, no, you start that this week. You start reading through 1 Corinthians this week. And as we get through some of these things, you're going to see all the 
crazy, terrible stuff that was going on in this church. For him to give them another chance was an expression of grace. It was a demonstration of love. And frankly, isn't that what Jesus did for us? I mean, Romans 5, 8 tells us that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. What, I, what life has come to teach me, unfortunately, is that extending grace is something that most people struggle with. In fact, most of us prefer exacting justice over extending grace. We need to look no farther than God's dealings with us to see how we also ought to extend grace to others. If you have no other motivation, just think of what God has done for you. And extend that grace to others. Well, I have one more point that I want us to look at this morning. But before we get there, we need to read the last section of our passage. So if you would look back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's read verses 5 through 11. The Bible goes on to say in this next section... Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn <coughs> to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. So folks, we need to remember as we're trying to understand what this passage is teaching us, we need to remember the historical context of this letter before we jump right into interpreting what he's saying here. Even though this book is called 2 Corinthians, this is actually the third letter written by Paul uh, to the church at Corinth. Again, the second letter was a stern letter written to them in lieu of him coming to visit them. And the letter addressed behaviors and attitudes that needed to change among the Corinthian believers. God chose not to preserve this second letter uh, to be included into the canon of Scripture, so everything that we know about the second letter is deduced from what we uh, learn from other sections of Holy Scripture. 
such as the Acts of the Apostles and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. So it seems that the members of the church have responded in a positive way to Paul's stern letter. He wrote this letter and they, they had a positive reaction to it. And so now he is addressing the issue of moving forward toward complete restoration of those who had committed the offense that he addressed in that second stern letter. And to, com to experience that complete restoration, Paul tells them that they need to forgive and comfort the offender. We see that in verse 7. So the final point that I want us to look at this morning is that reconciliation needs forgiveness. Reconciliation needs forgiveness. Folks, forgiveness is more than just verbal acceptance of an apology. It's a whole lot more than just a verbal acceptance of an apology. I don't know about you, but uh, when my sister and I would fight as children, and mom would tell me or to tell Jana, tell your brother or tell your sister that you're sorry. Josh, you had that happen before, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And we look at each other, sorry. Yeah, right? And then mom looks at the other one and say, say, it's okay. Right? I mean, you, you've been there. You've experienced that. Maybe this past week. I don't know. Maybe this week. The week's only 11 hours and 40 minutes in. But, you know, maybe it has happened already. When you forgive someone, it's more than just saying, oh, it's okay. There's more to it than that. Now, a few minutes ago, I gave you four keys for reconciling broken trust. I said that we've got to learn to see things from another person's point of view. I said we've got to speak the truth in love with positivity. And to focus on the problem, not the person. And to find common ground. Whether that's beliefs, purpose, goal, or, or something else. So now I want to give you five steps for genuine forgiveness. And we find them here in this passage. So if we truly want to forgive someone, the first thing we must do is we must stop punishing them for their offense. If you'll notice in verses 5 and 6, Paul basically says, look, the offender, whatever he did, he has been punished enough. Let it go. He said, he's gone through enough. He said, if you don't stop punishing him, it may be too much for him to handle. He's experienced enough, so stop punishing him or her for his offense. If we want to truly forgive someone, we've got to have that mindset. We've got to stop punishing them for what they did. The second thing we see is that we must extend grace to them. Verse 7, it says, So you should rather turn to forgive and 
comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. That's what I just mentioned. But notice that word there says, forgive and comfort him. Now, we've talked about this concept of grace many times. And we've talked about the idea of extending grace to someone on many different occasions. This word that is translated in the ESV as comfort him. Do you know what that word comes from? You know what the root word is in the Greek language? It's the word charis. Do you remember what charis is? That's grace. Charismata, spiritual gifts, that's the outworking of God's grace. This word is charizomai, which is to comfort, to extend grace, to give favor that is undeserved, to comfort. Folks, when someone offends you, when someone treats you wrong, when someone does something that is just unforgivable, well, first, we need to remember that God forgave us. And we need then to forgive others as well. We need to extend grace. Do they deserve it? No. Neither did you. Neither did I. We extend that undeserved favor to others. That grace. We comfort them. So number one, stop punishing them. Number two, extend grace. Number three goes on and says to strengthen and encourage them. Strengthen and encourage them. The word that's used here is parakaleo in the Greek. It comes from the noun paraclete, which is a person who comes along beside another one as an encourager. They help hold you up. Forgiveness goes way beyond just saying it's okay. Forgiveness, true, genuine forgiveness, is when you're going to walk beside that person and help them to do what they need to be doing. Let me hurry on. Verse 8, it goes on, it says, So I beg you to reaffirm your love. For them. So the fourth thing is to reaffirm your unconditional love. And yes, the word there, the root, is agape. That perfect love that has no conditions. Because, folks, if our love has conditions, then we're still punishing people for what they've done. It's not real forgiveness. Love must be unconditional. And then the fifth thing that I see here in this passage, if we truly want to forgive someone, is that we must decide to never, 
ever let it be an issue again. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan. For we are not ignorant of his designs. In verse 9, Paul said, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. You see, folks, in his wisdom, God has seen fit for you to hear these words of truth this morning. And it is God's desire that you be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. In other words, God wants you to be obedient to what you have heard from his word today. So who is it that God's telling you that you need to forgive? Who in your life has hurt you, has wounded you that you've just never, ever been able to let it go. Folks, unforgiveness is like a cancer that if it's not treated with the grace of God, it will grow into bitterness and wrath and will destroy you from the inside out. So what does God want you to do right now as a first step in forgiving that one that so terribly wounded you? What are you going to do? Will you trust God with your pain? Will you relinquish your desire for revenge, for payback? And will you, will you replace it with God's amazing grace? I didn't get to sing this morning. I didn't like that, David. <laughs> but I sat here and I, I mouthed the words as we were singing. My chains are gone. I've been set free. Folks, you've never experienced freedom like you experience when you forgive that person who has wounded you. Will you relinquish your desire for revenge? God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay. <laughs> and to that I say, when, Lord? I'm waiting. It's not up to me. It's not. Hmm. I may never see. what I think needs to happen. What I've got to realize, going back to what Pastor John preached last week, 
is that suffering and difficult situations in my life are what bring me into the will of God and conform me into the image of his son. So you know what? What I see as a binge-worthy action, God most likely sees as his sovereign hand at work in my life to create me into the person that he wants me to be. Will you get rid of that? Will you relinquish that desire and replace it with God's amazing grace? Will you extend grace to others just as God has extended it to you? I want to close with a, one last passage. We find it in Colossians chapter 3. I just want you to hear these words and you'll have the message. Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against another, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So that you must, so that you also must forgive. And then watch this, how he ends. And above all these, put on love. Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for our time together this morning. Lord, thank you for sustaining my voice. Lord, thank you for the way that you are working in my heart in this situation. And Father, I just pray, help me to relinquish any bitterness, pain, hurts and wounds help me to relinquish that to you father help me to extend grace to those who are un unworthy of forgiveness but lord place in my heart a desire, a willingness to forgive. Father, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.